Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Justin Wynn. I'm thrilled that you're listening this Easter morning. Happy Easter! It's going to be an incredible show. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Craig Evans, and he'll be talking about his chapter in How God Became Jesus, which you've been hearing about the last couple weeks on The God Solution as we've interviewed various of its authors. Anyway, today is Easter, and we're going to be talking with Dr. Evans, one of the experts on the evidence for Easter, and we're going to be talking to him about his chapter in this book, but also about the significance and the evidence for Easter. It's going to be an incredible show, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. Dr. Evans is Paisant Distinguished Professor of the New Testament at Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, Canada. He has authored more than 50 books, including this one, How God Made Jesus. Go to Amazon.com and just type in Craig Evans, exactly how it sounds, Craig Evans, and you'll find a lot of his books. There are several that I would suggest you could check out Word and Glory on the exegetical and theological background of John's prologue. You could also look at Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels, and The World of Jesus, The Archaeological Evidence. He's often interviewed on TV, radio, and in other media. He speaks at universities throughout the world. And I would encourage you to go to craigevans.com. Again, that's craigevans.com to hear more about Dr. Evans. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Evans. Hi, Nate. Thanks for being on The God Solution Show this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to help. Well, Dr. Evans, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to faith in Christ, and how you developed an interest in Christian apologetics. Well, I uh, came to faith when I was... Uh a young person, and uh, and remained a committed Christian then from that point on. But um, it was in high school I began seriously entertaining ideas of perhaps my own career being shaped by those convictions. And when in university, I uh, made a formal decision to go to seminary instead of law school and to train for full-time ministry, which I did. That was back in the 70s. And I did well in seminary with the curriculum, you know, the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that. I enjoyed it. Um, I had always been interested in history, which would, had been my major in university. And so um, even though I was on a pastoral staff, I was working with youth and, and, uh, and so on, and really enjoying the whole thing. Nonetheless, I had a real desire to continue pursuing study. So when I completed my... Uh, theology study for the Master of Divinity degree, I returned to Southern California and enrolled at Claremont, which at that time was a powerhouse in uh, New Testament study and New Testament in the world, in the context of antiquity. There was study in Gnosticism, study in magical papyri, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, early rabbinic Judaism, and things like that. It was a very strong faculty, so that's what led me then. And, of course, I still see myself, even though with a Ph.D. and as a professor in a university uh, here in Nova Scotia at Acadia University, I still think of myself very much as in ministry. So that's, that's kind of a brief overview of how it all got started and where I am today. That is wonderful. Well, I'm glad you are where you are today, and I'm glad for the work that you're doing in this field. All right. So why is the resurrection so important? 
Well, the resurrection is important because that's that's what initiated the whole Christian faith. If Jesus had not been raised, we wouldn't be here talking about this right now. There would be no Christian church. There'd be no Christian movement. Jesus would be just one more teacher, a sage, a rabbi who wandered around saying things about God, who then uh, in the end simply died. And that was the end of his movement. Uh, his his followers would have had nothing to proclaim, just just expressions of regret. But the resurrection did occur, and which surprised them because their expectations were not quite that. They, they anticipated a general resurrection at the end of time, not the resurrection of their beloved master. And that resurrection convinced them, you know what, he really was the Lord's anointed. He really is God's son. And so what he taught about God and the kingdom of God and many other things related to that, these things were true. And so they had something to proclaim, and they were excited. They had something to believe in. So the resurrection stands right at right at the very heart of the Christian movement. It explains it. The resurrection isn't an idea that somebody dreamed up, you know, when the church was 20 or 30 years old, and it sort of, hey, that's a good idea. That explains what happened to Jesus or why he disappeared. But the resurrection is what launched the church. It's not an afterthought. It's there at the very beginning, and that's why... It should always be regarded as essential. Yes, and in Jesus Interrupted, Ehrman provides a weak explanation of the historical evidence for the resurrection that he thinks may disprove the resurrection. He then even admits on page 178, quote, is my explanation of what they claimed, what they did, very probable? No. He admits that the explanation is weak. In his latest book, he takes a new approach to wiggling out of the evidence for the resurrection. Will you tell us how he tries to get out of the evidence for the resurrection in this new book and why he's wrong? Well, um, he takes an interesting uh, strategy, takes a different, interesting approach. He just simply says, look, the burden is not on him to explain what happened. He thinks any explanation, hallucinations, uh, a mix-up at the tomb, which he admits are weak, weak alternate explanations, but anything is a better explanation than simply saying that uh, he was raised from the dead, because that's then invoking a supernatural act. And I find that an interesting uh, strategy, because I I know Bart Ehrman. I've debated him uh, formally four different times. I've been on uh, on the platform at conferences with him, and, I, and I, what's interesting here is I remember him being challenged by Craig Keener, who's written a two-volume work on the miracles, and I don't think anybody knows the history of miracles and the present uh, uh, evidence for miracles better than Craig Keener, who's a professor of New Testament at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. And Craig Keener at one point challenged Bart Ehrman by saying that Bart has a closed worldview, a closed mind to the possibility of God acting in the world, a closed mind to the supernatural. And I remember how with great vehemence, and this was about three years ago, with great vehemence, uh, Professor Ehrman replied that he does not, in fact, have an anti-supernatural worldview. I remember that vividly, and it was recorded so that can be verified. And what I find surprising is he seems to be contradicting himself in his new book when he says that any other explanation, no matter how improbable or illogical or how weak that explanation may be, any other 
explanation is better than the saying, a miracle occurred. It sure sounds like that's a closed mind. It sure sounds like saying, I don't care how illogical or how poor the option is, it's better than believing that God perhaps did something. And he tries in this new book to say that Joseph of Arimathea did not really bury Jesus in his tomb and that there wouldn't have been a tomb or a burial or an empty tomb for that matter. Why is he wrong when he makes those kinds of statements? Well, he's almost certainly wrong on on that whole series of statements. It disappoints me uh, very much. I, I would have thought he would have handled that uh, those chapters in his book a little better. He's appealing to an argument that's 20 years old that was trotted out by uh, Dominic John Dominic Crossan, who argued first in a chapter in a book and then in a on a in a freestanding monograph of his own. That Jesus was not buried, but his body probably was left hanging on the cross where it just rotted in the sun, or maybe it was thrown into a shallow ditch where it was eaten by dogs. That created a sensation when that theory was proposed. But uh, archaeologists, historians, Jewish scholars, as well as Christian scholars responded that it's almost certainly false, that, that proposal. Because during peacetime, the, the sanctity of the land, the purity of the land of Israel was safeguarded. And to, uh, the idea of anyone, Jesus or anyone else, criminal or not, being unburied overnight for days on end, body parts being torn apart and dogs running around with human bones and so on in and out of the city gates of the holy city, Jerusalem, on the eve of Passover, no less, would have been just an outrage. It would have caused a riot. And so uh, Professor Ehrman makes a number of mistakes. For one thing, he claims that the Romans never allowed anyone to be buried who was executed or crucified. Well, that's just not true. Roman law states otherwise. Yes, sometimes people were left unburied. That did happen, and there are references to that, so I don't challenge that. But the actual Roman law, as it's compiled in a work called Digesta, actually points out that... uh, under most cases, if somebody asks for the body to be taken down, the government should permit it. Now, that's throughout the Roman Empire. In Israel itself, Josephus flat-out writes states. Josephus is a contemporary, a younger contemporary. He flat-out writes states that uh, the, the Roman government kept the peace in Israel because Israel's customs and, and the traditions were respected. And one of those things is the burial of crucifixion victims. And it was only the Romans who had authority in the time of Jesus to crucify or execute anyone. So when he says that the crucifixion victims were buried, that meant that the Romans permitted it. And the Jewish people would insist upon it. doesn't matter how bad the criminal is. To leave his body unexposed uh, overnight violates the law of Deuteronomy 21, which was taken very seriously uh, in Israel in uh, Jesus' own time. And, of course, we actually have physical evidence from tombs of people who were properly buried, who were executed either by beheading or crucifixion. And none of that archaeological evidence is cited in Professor Ehrman's new book, nor is the Digesta cited, which states that normally people who were crucified were buried. So I see that as a pretty serious omission. And then that leads him to say erroneously that all of the evidence, that's, those are his words, all of the evidence suggests that Jesus would not have been buried. But in fact, uh, the evidence suggests just the opposite, 
that uh, he and the other two men crucified with him would, in fact, have been buried, and in a place that would have been known. And, of course, Jewish law that we have today from this period of time says that the Sanhedrin, if the Sanhedrin condemned anyone to death, then it fell to the Sanhedrin to provide for the burial of that condemned person in tombs of dishonor, tombs set aside for that very purpose. And after one year, the family then could relocate those remains to an honorable place of burial. And I have no doubt that's exactly what Jesus' following, Jesus' mother and some other supportive women, that's exactly what they intended, knew where Jesus had been buried. They were going to grieve there quietly as the law permitted, not loudly, no loud lamentation, no musical instruments, but quietly and privately the law allowed for that, even for executed criminals. So they would have known where he was buried, and they would have fully expected to retrieve his body at a future date and take it to a family tomb. So the idea that Jesus would not have been taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb, the idea that no one would have really known where that tomb is, that idea flies in the face of the evidence. It is extremely weak. It is extremely unlikely. And and I really think that we should go with the Gospels. By the way, one of uh, Bart Ehrman's own colleagues at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, her name is Jody Magnus. She is Jewish, she's an archaeologist, and she states, and I quote her in my chapter uh, in our book that responds to Bart Ehrman's book, she states that the Gospels are, this narrative in the Gospels is fully consistent with the evidence and with Jewish laws and customs of this time. So, uh, frankly, I don't think Bart Ehrman's skepticism at this point has a leg to stand on. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. Thank you so much for tuning in this Easter morning. Happy Easter! Okay, so what is some of the archaeological evidence that you describe in the book? Well, the archaeological evidence... Uh, is not reviewed in Bart Ehrman's book, but I do review it in my chapter. And the most direct evidence is the uh, crucified man named Yehohanan, whose skeleton was found with an iron spike still embedded in his right heel. Uh, they couldn't get the spike out. The, the sharp end of the spike had bent back. It was fishhooked. They simply couldn't extract it from the post. And so they then chipped away the wood and then buried this poor man with the uh, iron spike and wood pieces still attached to it uh, in a tomb. And then a year later, as the Jewish law permitted, his skeleton was gathered up and placed in an ossuary, a bone box. His name was written on it. That's why we know his name is Yehohanan, or John today is how we'd say it. And the box was then placed in his family tomb, where then we find it 1,900 years later. We believe he was crucified in the 20s of the first century, and that would be Pontius Pilate. He was the very governor who put this man to death and, of course, allowed him to be buried, again, for reasons I said earlier, to keep the peace, to respect the Jewish customs, not because Pontius Pilate cared one way or the other, uh, not because he read Deuteronomy or gave a wit uh, of interest in Jewish scripture. It didn't matter to him if he was buried or not, but if that keeps the Jewish local Jews happy, then so be it. So I'm sure that was his attitude, largely one of indifference, 
not compassion. And uh, so we have that skeleton, but we have uh, the skeleton of another man who had been crucified earlier in the first century B.C. The nails were still in the bones of his hands. Uh, We have at least two other people who had been decapitated, and they had been properly buried. But part of the problem, Nate, is that uh, these bones, you know, the small bones of the hands and feet and the small neck bones, they don't survive very well after being buried for 2,000 years. And so they're practically little more than dust in some cases. So the evidence of crucifixion is hard to detect. Even in the case of Yehohanan, had that nail not been in his heel, and his heel was crumbling, I doubt if we would have, we would have been able to guess that he'd been crucified. So there's probably a lot more evidence that we even know about and in any case, we've recovered over 100 nails from uh, uh, ossuaries and tombs that have human calcium attached to, uh, to many of them. So we surmise these were all crucifixion nails. And for them to be found in tombs would suggest that crucifixion victims were, in fact, buried, probably many of them. So the evidence is overwhelming, I would say, that people that were crucified during this time could also have been buried, just as we hear in the story of Christ. Well, I think the evidence, I would regard the evidence as overwhelming. You know, anybody that does history of late antiquity, uh, never mind great antiquity, but anybody dealing with late antiquity, the evidence is always sketchy. It's never as full as we'd like it. But in the case of Jesus, you know, uh, there... Even the earliest creed refers to him as being buried, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, which Bart Ehrman, by the way, his discussion of that, for the most part, is pretty good. He recognizes that that creed, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures, that he was seen by uh, Cephas or Peter and so on, he argues rightly that that's very, very early, probably going back to just a year or two after the Easter event. Well, it says buried. So, you know, if Jesus was not buried, I think everybody would have known that. And that would have been yet another offense. In fact, that could have just added to your theology. You could say why he died shamefully and indeed experienced the degradation, the further degradation of not even being properly buried. Nevertheless, God exalted him. I mean, what would have been the problem? Mm -hmm. You know, being buried is not some kind of Christological requirement. Uh, but everybody knew, in fact, he was buried. So it's nothing. It's not apologetic. It's just a statement of fact that, in keeping with custom, in keeping with Jewish expectations during peacetime, of course he was buried, and of course we knew where. And that's why the empty tomb story could be told so vividly. And that's why, too, they say it's women who found the tomb. If this was a fiction. If we just wanted to make up a story about an empty tomb, then have Peter show up. Or maybe have concerned Roman officials show up and look into the empty tomb and wonder what had happened. From an apologetic point of view, that would be more convincing. Not frightened women that don't know what to say. And that's what the Gospels tell us. And that tells me that this is uh, the brute fact. This is what actually happened, even if it's not the best story that a fiction writer would like to say. Because fictional accounts a hundred years later, like we have in the pseudepigraphal Gospel of Peter, those accounts start talking about hostile witnesses and overwhelming appearances and so forth. You can see the apologetic effort at work 
in reaction to skepticism and pagan ridicule and so on. But in these first century Gospels, the ones written during the lifetime of the apostles and other eyewitnesses, the first century New Testament Gospels, I think, tell it like it is, even if it's not particularly flattering, even if it's not told in a way that would be really convincing and persuasive. And I find that a very significant point. You know, why have Mary Magdalene, of all people, be the first to find the empty tomb and see the risen Jesus? Just leave her out of the story and only talk about somebody else. But that's not what the gospel writers do. And that gives me confidence in in them as tellers of truth and not tellers of pious fiction. That is one of Habermas's minimal facts and his minimal facts approach for um, the evidence for the resurrection. He's actually been on the show discussing that before. What other evidence would lead you to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, what convinces me is that there, it wasn't just Peter had a vision and that was it. You know, now we all have to believe Peter. It's that there were so many people and different times, different numbers, different times, and different types of people. So you have Peter, okay, you would expect that. He's the leader of the disciples. But then he appears to all of them. Then he appears also to his brother James. I find that very interesting because according to the Gospel of John, and this is an embarrassment, Jesus' brothers, at least at one time in his ministry, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And that would include James. And yet Jesus appears to James, and James emerges as a leader of the church. In fact, he's the head of the church in Jerusalem for 20 years, from the 40s till his death in 62. I find that very convincing. A large group of people, Paul says more than 500 at one time, and then very significantly, Jesus appears to Paul. And see, you know, how do you explain that away? You can say, oh, well, his friends missed him, his family members missed him, they were traumatized by the, by the crucifixion. And so some kind of psychological thing happened, as unlikely as that is. I suppose, theoretically, that might be possible. But how do you explain the appearance to Paul? Paul's opposed to Jesus from the get-go. So far as we know, Paul had never met Jesus during his public ministry. Paul was opposed to the Christian movement, felt that it was wrong, that it was not uh, faithful to the law the way Paul as a Pharisee understood it. And so there he is actively opposing this movement. So psychologically, why would he ex- you know, have some kind of need to experience the risen Jesus? I find that so implausible. And so, for me, what's very convincing is not only the historical verisimilitude, that is the realism that we see in the Gospels, the correlation with history, with evidence, with archaeology, but it's just, there are just too many witnesses, there are just too, and too many kinds of witnesses, people who are either indifferent or opposed, or of course devoted to him, who love him. Jesus appears to family members, non-family members, friends and strangers so every across the board every stripe and uh and the witness is always the same it's it's a risen jesus it's not a ghost story it's not a it's not a dream but it's a real encounter when a person's alive and awake and whether seated in a room or walking out on a road they encounter him and they see him and they're they're convinced it is in fact jesus of nazareth whom they have seen who has been raised up and i find those accounts 
And, of course, the way it transformed his following, the way it transformed Paul, and all the way it transforms society, the good that comes out of it, all of this points uh, in favor and support of the truthfulness of it. So how should people this Easter morning respond to the evidence for the resurrection? Well, you know, uh, I'm hope, I hope when people hear the good news of the resurrection proclaimed, that God worked decisively in his son, and of course the most dramatic work ever is raising him from the dead Easter morning. I hope that, that, that there's a response in that and with awe and faith an embracing of the gospel, and get off the fence. Don't sit there, but be committed. And embrace Jesus' vision, embrace his mission, become part of it, become part of the solution. And so, you know, uh, embrace the gospel as a living faith and not just simply a, a factoid that's tucked away in one's mind, but allow it to be transforming and life-changing. Well, Dr. Evans, it's been a wonderful interview. Before we close it out, I wanted to ask you if you have any last thoughts or anything you'd like to share with the audience this Easter morning. Well, you know, this is the important day. This is the day that launched the church. This is the day that ratified the message of Jesus. This was the day that vindicated him and showed that, uh, indeed, he was the Son of God and that uh, his mission was authorized by God, and, he's, and what he has to say needs to be embraced. It's a liberating message. It's not enslavement. It's not, we're not being tied up and bound and put in a box. It's not a legalistic thing full of do's and don'ts. The good news of the gospel is a liberating one. It's being set free from, from the problems and the ills that face the world, uh, from our own sinful, sinful inclinations, it's a good news story all around, and I hope that, that that is understood by people. And it's something to be excited about. It means we have a future. It means that we have hope. And so to embrace the gospel is indeed to be saved, saved from ourselves and all that would want to harm and destroy us. So I hope people understand that and receive it as the good news that it is. Well, Dr. Evans, thank you so much for being on The God Solution this morning. Well, you're very welcome, Nate. Happy Easter. Thank you very much. Same to you, Nate. You bet. Bye-bye. Thanks, Nate. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed everything that Dr. Evans had to say this morning. As we celebrate Easter, there's no better way to celebrate than to come to Jesus realizing that the evidence is compelling for his resurrection and that he died for your and my sins. The Bible tells us that all of us are sinful and separated from God because of our sin. But God became a man and he took your sins and mine on himself and he paid for those on the cross, dying for you and me. You can come to him this morning by putting your faith and your trust in him, saying, Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner that needs your forgiveness. Please forgive me for my sins. Please come into my life as my Savior and Lord. I know that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again to give me new life. Thank you for adopting me into your family this Easter morning. I hope that if you haven't taken that step yet, you will this morning. And I can't think of a better way to celebrate Easter. Well, how about celebrating Easter by joining a local church this morning? You could go to godsolutionshow.com to see a list of local churches and the times and the places that they meet. And you could visit one of those churches for an Easter service this morning. I hope you'll do that. You could also join us at Connect this week, Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble 125. Please don't forget to go to Amazon.com and get How God Became Jesus. 
I would also like to invite you to visit GodSolutionShow.com to leave us some comments about the show and anything you'd like us to address on the show in the future. As we close out the show, I have to say it again, Happy Easter. This is the greatest celebration of the greatest event in all of history, the greatest news humankind has ever heard, that God would come and meet us where we're at as God in human flesh, Jesus Christ on this planet, dying for your sins and mine, and then rising again, proving that he had the power to offer you what he claims he can, eternal life. No other religious figures ever conquered death. Only Jesus has, and only he has the authority to offer you what he claims he can. I hope that you'll take him up on that offer this morning. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Happy birthday, Aaron. I wanted to thank you, Aaron, for being the most amazing woman that I know. And happy birthday, Mom. I love you a ton. Happy Easter. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Easter Sunday. Wow.